Michigan police activating their fugitive team. The lead starts right now. A manhunt underway this hour for the parents of the suspected Michigan school shooter. The parents went missing after prosecutors announced charges and laid out a rather scathing case against them. As we wait to understand more about the Omicron variant, the Biden White House is hoping to make it easier for every American to get a COVID test. CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta just sat down with the head of the CDC to talk about how. Then, all eyes are on a key border as Russia stocks up medical supplies and fuel and other military equipment. What is Vladimir Putin planning to do to Ukraine and when? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with breaking news. The parents of 15-year-old Michigan school shooting suspect Ethan Crumbly are missing. The Oakland County Sheriff telling CNN moments ago that all available resources, including a fugitive team, the U.S. Marshals, and the FBI are right now looking for James and Jennifer Crumbly. Prosecutors earlier today charged the Crumblies with four counts of involuntary manslaughter stemming from Tuesday's deadly shooting which their son allegedly carried out, leaving four teenagers dead. The Crumblies were scheduled to appear in court this hour after prosecutors said today the couple purchased the handgun for their son as a Christmas gift and failed to act despite multiple warning signs, even on the morning before the shooting. Ethan Crumbly's teacher came upon a note on Ethan's desk, which alarmed her to the point that she took a picture of it on her cell phone. The note contained the following. A drawing of a semi-automatic handgun pointing at the words, quote, the thoughts won't stop, help me, end quote. In another section of the note was a drawing of a bullet with the following words above that bullet, quote, blood everywhere. James and Jennifer Crumbly resisted the idea of then leaving the school at that time, of, of their son leaving the school at that time. Instead, James and Jennifer Crumbly left the high school without their son. Let's get straight to CNN's Alexandra Field, live for us in Oxford, Michigan. Alexandra, do police have any leads as to where the Crumblies could be? No, Jake, they're actually turning to the public now asking for help. This community grieving, but also being asked to be on the lookout for both Jennifer and James Crumbly. The sheriff's department putting out pictures of both of them and the black Kia SUV that they may have been driving. The last we all saw of Jennifer and James Crumbly was via video link when they attended their son's arraignment virtually earlier this week. At that time, you could see that the video was being shot from a car. Not clear at all where they are. The sheriff's office is saying that they had been in touch with the couple's attorney to arrange a possible arrest once there were charges. That attorney now saying uh, that they are no longer in contact with the couple. All of this coming after the prosecutor laid out more of the chilling details of the shooting inside this school earlier this week and an impassioned plea for why she thinks these parents need to be held accountable. While the shooter was the one who entered the high school and pulled the trigger, there are other individuals who contributed to this. In a rare move, a prosecutor holding the parents of a school shooter responsible in the deaths of four teenagers, hunted down, investigators say, by their son in the hallways of a high school. Anyone who had the opportunity to stop this from happening, to have done it. James and Jennifer Crumbly, each charged with four counts of involuntary manslaughter following Tuesday's attack. We have an active shooter incident. So far, we do have confirmed injuries. 
The Oakland County prosecutor saying the father bought the semi-automatic handgun used in the shooting four days earlier with his 15-year-old son, Ethan, by his side. Ethan later posting a picture of it on social media with the caption, just got my new beauty today. And his mother in her own now deleted post writing, mom and son day testing out his new Christmas present, according to prosecutors. Within days, Ethan's behavior sets off alarm bells at Oxford High School. Prosecutors laying out a series of glaring failures that followed. A teacher at the Oxford High School observed Ethan Crumbly searching ammunition on his cell phone during class and reported the same to school officials. Jennifer Crumbly doesn't respond to messages from the school, but investigators say she does send a text message to her son. LOL, I'm not mad at you. You have to learn not to get caught. The next day, the morning of the shooting, another teacher makes a shocking discovery. A drawing of a semi-automatic handgun pointing at the words, quote, the thoughts won't stop, help me, end quote. In another section of the note was a drawing of a bullet with the following words above that bullet, quote, blood everywhere, end quote. Between the drawing of the gun and the bullet is a drawing of a person who appears to have been shot twice and bleeding. Below that figure is a drawing of a laughing emoji. Further down the drawing are the words, quote, my life is useless, end quote. And to the night right of that are the words, quote, the world is dead, end quote. Officials say the suspect and his parents met with administrators. Law enforcement isn't notified. Neither is a school resource officer. But the Crumblies, who are told to get counseling for their son within 48 hours, resist taking him home for the day. They never ask him where his gun is, likely in his backpack, investigators say. As news of a shooting at the high school breaks on Tuesday afternoon, a text from Jennifer, Ethan, don't do it. Minutes later, prosecutors say James Crumbly calls 911 to report a missing gun that had been stored, investigators say, in an unlocked drawer. I am by no means saying that an active shooter situation should always result in a criminal prosecution against parents. But the facts of this case are so egregious this doesn't just have impact me as a prosecutor and a lawyer, it impacts me as a mother. And Jake, a major development coming in in just the last couple of minutes. Attorneys who say they are representing the Crumblies reaching out with this statement saying that the Crumblies are in fact not missing. They say this, on Thursday night we contacted the Oakland County prosecutor to discuss this matter and to advise her that James and Jennifer Crumbly would be turning themselves in to be arraigned instead of communicating with us. The prosecutor held a press conference to announce charges. The attorneys go on to say here, the Crumblies left town on the night of the tragic shooting for their own safety. They are returning to the area to be arraigned. They are not fleeing from law enforcement, despite recent comments in media reports. But Jake, of course, we know they were supposed to be in court for that arraignment at four o'clock. Hmm. Alexander Field, thank you so much. Here to discuss civil rights attorney and CNN legal analyst Ariva Martin, former prosecutor Charles Coleman Jr., and CNN national security analyst Juliet Kayyem. So, Juliet, let me start with you. Yeah. Uh, we just heard this uh, statement from the parents' lawyers that the, the Crumblies uh, are not fleeing the law. They uh, are just out of town for their own safety. Um, how does that square with the fact that they were supposed to be in court uh, and did not attend? Yeah. It, it, a lot of it doesn't square. So this may just be a, a covering of themselves. I, I, it is, it is hard to tell right now. What makes no sense 
honestly, is why is this a story? This should never have happened. Once once the prosecutor files and she has a national press conference, you would have the sheriff standing, knowing where the family is and standing outside the door. So this is this may get resolved in the next hour. It's a distraction to the larger story, which is, of course, uh, uh, dead uh, uh, teenagers and parents who are uh, uh, who are being charged for being essentially responsible uh, for that killing. Uh, but we'll we'll figure it out. But there's just been a gap in communication between the school and the sheriff's office and now the prosecutor in the sheriff's office, which all get you know, which which um, are, are sort of unforgivable at this stage, given what's happened. Ariva, let me ask you. So let's put the, the issue of where the crumbly parents are right now aside for a second and just talk about the extraordinary nature of these charges against them. Uh, what are your thoughts? If you were the crumbly's defense attorney, how would you be planning a, a defense for them? Yeah, Jake, these are extraordinary charges. We know that prosecutors have been reluctant to charge parents in these uh, you know, school shooting cases even though in some cases, like the case of the Crumbies today, parents seem to have some criminal responsibility. Uh, the defense attorneys are going to have to show that these parents acted responsibly. And all the information that's coming out to date suggests that they did just the opposite. Their Facebook posts of the mom uh, bragging about having bought this gun for her son for Christmas. And it's questionable as to whether a 15-year-old could even carry a gun or have a gun in his possession in this state. Uh, also, uh, information coming out that the gun was not kept in a secure and locked uh, place, uh, information that the parents had red flags, but they ignored them. So this is an uphill battle for this defense team. Charles, as a former prosecutor, I'm wondering just what specific charges there are against the Crumblies that you think you would have a good chance of prosecuting, because as you know, there are rather lax gun laws uh, in the United States. Uh, and it may be that it w- I, I don't know the, the gun laws in Michigan, but it might not have been illegal to buy their 15-year-old son a gun. It might not have been illegal to not store it safely in the home. I, I don't know. What, what do you think? Well, Jake, I've taken a look at the statutes in Michigan, and quite frankly, I don't think that the prosecution is going to have a strong case with them regarding any of the gun possession laws in and of themselves, at least not against the parents. I think the prosecution stands to make some ground and get some traction is going to on these involuntary uh, charges that you've seen because they don't require intent. And there have been so many different red flags, as Ariva pointed out earlier, that were in the way of what we saw that can be argued should have been flags and should have been uh, notes for these parents to intervene in a way that could have prevented this. And because they didn't, because you have things like the mother texting the son, I'm not mad at you, but just don't get caught. Those things can ultimately be seen as aiding and abetting the final outcome, which is why I think these involuntary voluntary charges are going to stick, but I don't see very much coming from any sort of gun possession uh, uh, charges in this case. Juliet, I I mean, to put, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but bad parenting isn't necessarily against the law. No, that's exactly right. And, and, and there probably are no gun charges because Michigan doesn't have a safe storage law, as the, as the prosecutor said. Uh, but this is not about bad parenting. So let's make it clear. This is not about negligence. It's not about bad parenting. It is about involuntary manslaughter, which is defined as you are contributing, although you may not wish it, you are contributing to the death of people. And this is where 
Uh, the case is historic because it is the first case in a, in a mass school shooting where uh, the parents are being criminally charged. Uh, but secondly, the facts are really, really strong and not just what was already laid out by the uh, uh, two previous guests. There's this one moment that, um, you know, everyone's jaw was dropped during the press conference. But the one that just struck me was the parents not apparently not knowing where the gun is insisting that the that their child stay in school. Now, we can debate why the school allowed that. But the parents and with full knowledge then want the kids still in school. And that's going to that's going to hurt them. Julia Kayyem, Ariva Martin, Charles Coleman Jr., thanks to all of you. We'll keep bringing you updates on this breaking story coming up. Just a week has passed since the Omicron variant was announced to the world. CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta talks to the head of the CDC about the variant. That's next. Then actor Alec Baldwin is now talking about the deadly shooting on the Rust movie set. But his side of the story is raising even more questions. Stay with us. In our health lead today, the Biden administration insists the U.S. has the tools to stay ahead of the new Omicron variant. This as average COVID daily cases top the 100,000 mark in the U.S., the first time that's happened since October. Various Republican officials, including Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio, can tweet, quote, real America is done with COVID-19, unquote, but... That does not mean COVID-19 is done with America. Hospitalizations are around 58,000 right now. They've been on the rise for almost a month. Deaths due to COVID in the U.S. are now around 1,300 every day. Every day. That's the highest in more than a month. And that includes 6,000 new cases and 57 deaths in Ohio just yesterday, Congressman Jordan. While Omicron could be a factor in the virus's rise, the CDC director told CNN Sanjay Gupta just moments ago that the highly contagious Delta variant seems largely to blame. More of her comments in a moment. But first, CNN's Nick Watt with the Biden administration's effort to fight this new unknown. Omicron is in the United States. That mild case in Minnesota, he was fully vaccinated and boosted. So far, I am reassured that this will be just a mild illness, if any illness at all, for those of us that are fully vaccinated. But there are a lot of people in the U.S. who are unvaccinated, and our hospitals cannot take that kind of surge again. Still unclear if this variant, first detected in southern Africa, evades vaccines or spreads faster, but... We do think it is quite infectious, quite transmissible, because South Africa has been reporting a very rapid increase in the number of cases. In fact, they've been doubling every day. The other thing that's becoming clearer is that people who are infected with other versions of the SARS-CoV-2 virus can be reinfected with this one. New travel restrictions kick in 12.01 a.m. Monday. Everyone coming into the U.S. will have to test negative within 24 hours of departure. Some experts also advocating domestic travel restrictions. When you go through security, you show your vaccine uh, uh, card. If you don't, if you haven't been vaccinated, you can't uh, get on board an aircraft. The Biden administration has said it will not do that. The measures that I announced yesterday are, we believe, are sufficient. But we do require for travel. We're going to continue to require the people to have masks on. The administration will now distribute 50 million free at-home tests. 
The Trump administration totally undermined testing. I think the Biden administration has done a better job, but I don't think they've done enough uh, to really make these tests as widely available as they should be. They're now trying to speed up the identification of variant cases. Latest analysis, sample collection to ID, takes 28 days here. Much quicker in Botswana, Belgium and the UK. The Delta variant is still very dominant in the US. And big picture, we're now averaging over 100,000 new infections every day. Hasn't been that high in nearly two months. Hospitalizations and deaths also climbing. And today, the Biden administration is shipping 11 million vaccine doses overseas, 9 million of them to Africa. Now, of course, this Omicron variant first detected in South Africa, only 25% of South Africans are fully vaccinated, but it's not a supply issue. They've got plenty of doses down in South Africa. They, like us, have a vaccine hesitancy issue. Jake. All right, Nick Watt, thanks so much. Let's talk now to CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, thanks for joining us. Always a treat to have you in studio. So let's play a key moment in your conversation this afternoon with the CDC CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky. You asked her if she was worried Omicron could become the dominant strain here in the U.S. Here's what she said. It might, um, and we don't yet know. What we do know is that early data and even um, mutation data are telling us that this may well be a more transmissible variant than uh, Delta. And so um, we're, this is going to take some time to sort out. We are prepared, though. We are um, doing genomic sequencing in all of these states. What'd you make of that? Well, I mean, we are doing a lot more genomic sequencing than we were doing, but it does strike me still that most of these variants are typically found in other places first. And I think a large part of that is we're still not doing enough overall testing, PCR tests. In the U.S. In the United States, about a million to a million and a half per day. You remember at one point we were talking about doing 20 or 30 million per day. So maybe we'll get to that point. Dr. Fauci still thinks we will, but you know, that's part of the problem. But if you take a look at what's happened in South Africa specifically, I think this tells a tale because you look at the graph there, beta was also a dominant strain for a while in South Africa, but it never became the dominant strain here. And also, if you look at the, the far right of the screen there, at the time that Omicron really started in large numbers in South Africa, it wasn't competing against anything. So we'll see. You know, Delta is still far and away the dominant strain. We're not seeing a lot of contacts of these people that we've heard about testing positive. We're not seeing them test positive yet. So I think we just have to wait and see a little bit longer. So the Biden administration, they keep saying that they have the tools. We have the tools uh, to get ahead of the variant. Uh, We have vaccines, we have boosters, we have testing, and now we have added restrictions on people traveling to the United States from other countries. Is there any evidence that Americans are taking advantage of these tools? I, I think there is now. I mean, it's interesting. Even since this Omicron news sort of broke, you have seen a, an increase in overall vaccinations. 2.2 million shots yesterday went into arms. About a million of those were boosters. That was the highest number since May. So we saw sort of a similar uptick when Delta started to come on the scene because people get nervous. They want to go get their shots. So we are seeing that. And you can see the graph there. You can see the uptick in overall vaccines. There are more tests, as I mentioned, still not nearly enough, I think. But maybe those numbers will go up. But I think the the thing about boosters, the sentiment about boosters, I think, is perhaps the most encouraging. If you look at this graph, there's about 18 percent of people who say probably will not or definitely will not get a booster. But that means about 82 percent say that they they will or they you know probably will. So those are good numbers. You know, Jake, it's always around 17, 18 percent. 
hesitancy. It was the same number vaccine hesitancy initially, and now we're seeing the same number with boosters. So we're seeing evidence of community spread right here in the U.S. with the weekly average of COVID cases going up, hospitalizations going up, deaths going up. Uh, What do you make of the Biden administration's reluctance to create restrictions nationwide for those who are vaccinated or not vaccinated? Well, I I think when it comes to things like uh, airline travel, for example, I think that they are talking about the fact that, I think three things, really. One is there haven't been large outbreaks on planes. Okay, I mean, that's... A lot of air circulating and people are wearing masks. Yeah, and I think the mask thing is is big. And, you know, since the beginning, they thought that should be a really protective measure. And it it turns out that it probably is because we haven't seen those outbreaks. They're going to extend those mask mandates on, on all kinds of public transport. I think the second thing is that, you know, there's not a real willingness to, to impose those sorts of mandates on domestic travel, and the airline industry doesn't really want them either. So I think there's been this back and forth. Why do we need to do this? We haven't had outbreaks. Masks work. Just extend those. That seems to be the message for now. There's a lot of people in the public health community that disagree with that. They think mm. if you really are serious about getting that 35% of people who still have not been vaccinated, this would go a long way. But They've made it clear they're not ready for that yet. And there are, there's a whole political party who's against these mandates uh, and even encouraging vaccine ignorance, if not uh, I, opposition. They think it's over. They think it's over. That's what Congressman Jim Jordan says, and he's wrong. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Growing concern that Vladimir Putin is up to no good. New reporting about Russia's latest moves along the Ukrainian border. Stay with us. In our world lead now, new evidence that Russia is preparing for a possibly prolonged conflict if Vladimir Putin ultimately decides to invade Ukraine. Sources are telling CNN that Russia is erecting supply lines, including medical units and fuel along the border with Ukraine. CNN's chief national security correspondent Jim Shido is here with his reporting. So, Jim, are Ukraine, the U.S. and European allies essentially preparing for war? They don't know what Russia will do, but, but the current U.S. intel assessment is that Russia has everything it needs in place today to mount an invasion. And the most recent information is that they have supply lines in, in place that had been missing to this point. That is supply lines to supply frontline forces for 7 to 10 days, support forces for 30 days. This includes things like making plans for field hospitals, medical units to, to treat their wounded uh, fuel lines, uh, fuel supplies, ammunition, etc., Uh, That's key. In addition to that, Russia, uh, our reporting is that they've added more troops in just recent days. So they have everything they need. And if they were to choose to attack, I'm told by a member of the House Intelligence Committee, that they so overwhelm Ukrainian forces that that would be, and the Russian plan would be, for a blitzkrieg-like assault. It's meant to be swift, and it's meant to have not just a military element, but but a political element as well, replacing political leadership in Ukraine, again, if they choose to invade. And we should, I mean, we should point out, they've done this before. They did this to breakaway republics in Georgia. They did this to uh, Crimea in Ukraine. So uh, President Biden was asked about Russia this morning. Here's Mm -hmm. what he had to say. What I am doing is putting together what I believe to be, will be the most comprehensive and uh, meaningful set of initiatives to make it very, very difficult for Mr. Putin to, uh, to go ahead and do what people are worried he may do. But that's in play right now. 
We should point out for our viewers that uh, President Biden has a cold, mm-hmm. uh, that I think, given to him by his grandson. That's why his voice sounds like that. But take us behind the scenes. What is President Biden talking about? From the beginning, the U.S. strategy in response has been to, one, internationalize this, get U.S. allies on board, both in terms of supporting Ukraine, but also publicly warning Russia, don't do this, but also to raise the costs for Russia. And that is by providing lethal military assistance to Ukrainian forces so that Russia cannot assume that its invasion would be cost-free, right, that it would be long. The question is, and I've heard this from members both Democratic and Republican here, that the U.S. has not been giving in the West uh, military assistance to Ukraine sufficiently and quickly enough to raise the cost significantly and sufficiently enough for Russia. But it's an open question of what Russia chooses to do. That's right. Obama did not give that uh, lethal assistance, mm. uh, but Trump did and Biden willing to do so yeah. as well. Jim Shooter, thanks so much. Ten out of ten times it has happened, and congressional Democrats, they won't like these numbers. That story's next. In our politics lead, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia is telling colleagues he does not think that Biden's Build Back Better Act, the social safety network bill, will pass by Christmas. That, if true, could be a big blow for President Biden and Democrats as they head into the 2022 midterms. Republicans only need to gain five seats to retake control of the House of Representatives. And a new CNN analysis shows the odds are very much in favor of the GOP doing so. CNN senior data reporter Harry Enten joins me. And Harry, you looked at the generic congressional ballot, which asks likely voters if they would prefer a Democrat or a Republican to re- represent them in, in Congress. And, and what's it telling you? I mean, I've looked at this historically speaking, and I can tell you right now that the Republicans lead on the generic congressional ballot. They lead by just two points. But compare that to where we were four years ago at this point. What you saw was that Democrats had a nine-point advantage at this exact point in time. And I could just tell you that Republicans leading on the generic congressional ballot is very, 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 very rare. But more than just being very rare, look at the opposition party leading on the generic congressional ballot. And you can go all the way back. Let's go all the way back since 1938. If you're going back before Biden is born, you know you're going back a long time. And if you look at this, when the opposition party leads on the generic congressional ballot at this point in midterm since 1938, they have won or held control of the House 10 out of 10 times. Now, obviously, that's a relatively small sample size. But whenever you get 10 out of 10 in politics, that is a very clear sign that the Democrats at this point, if history holds, are in a lot, a lot of trouble. And, and Harry, one of the things uh, Congress watchers do, it's like uh, detecting trouble in a forest. You see rabbits and squirrels and the animals running out of the woods into the field. Uh, and uh, Democratic Congressman Peter DeFazio from Oregon, he's a, he's a House chairman. He just announced he's retiring. This is the 11th House Democrat to retire from public office to announce it ahead of the midterms. And this is significant. It is significant because these folks are looking at the same measures that we're looking at. And as you mentioned, Democrats now have 11 folks who are retiring from public office in the House. Look at how many Republicans have. They have just four. This is a complete reversal of where we were in 2018 when a lot more Republicans were retiring than Democrats. And, you know, they know what's cooking. They know what's going on. And if you look back historically, right, if you look back since 1974 midterm elections, what do you see? You see that the party with fewer, fewer retirements gains House seats eight out of 12 times. So that's not perfect, 
But when you combine that with what we're seeing in the generic congressional ballot, you can see that there are sort of all these different factors are working against the Democrats at this particular point in time. And let's talk about President Biden's approval rating and what that might indicate about Democrats and the and the coming midterms. It's not good because if you look, normally the party in power, uh, the White House party loses seats. And if you look at the few times in the polling era where they didn't lose seats, look at where the president's approval rating was. It was well above where Joe Biden's was at this particular point. It's just 41 percent Biden's rating. You look back at the times that the, the White House party lost less than five seats. Look at that, 79, 60 percent, 86 percent. But if you just look historically right and you look back since 1870, it shouldn't be a big surprise that Democrats are in a lot of trouble because 34 out of 38 times the White House party has lost five seats or more. All right, Harry Enten, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Good to see you again. Let's discuss Gloria Borger. Uh, Those numbers uh, that Harry Enten laid out are pretty uh, staggering if you're a Democrat. Uh, Pretty much, theoretically, a a 100% chance, according to the the data, that Republicans (laughs) will take back the House. I guess the question is, is there anything Democrats can do to at least stem the tide a little bit? Yeah, first get into bed, pull the blankets over your head. Yeah, of course, of course there is. Um, they have to start talking about what they're doing to help the average American. And there was this great memo uh, written this week by a Democratic strategist who basically said things that you would that are easy. Stop fighting with each other. All people know about you is that you fight with each other a lot. Have a positive message. Don't tie everything to Donald Trump. They're over Donald Trump. They want to know what your brand stands for. And so far, they think your brand is just Joe Biden and they don't like Joe Biden very much. So come up with something else. So that's why they want to pass Build Back Better so they can talk to the American public about what they've done for them. The public acknowledges infrastructure and likes that. How about some other things? They acknowledge it and like it, but I haven't heard the Democrats talk a ton about it, even though it's that that did pass. Um, Simon Kim, President Biden's approval rating is grim. In in your newspaper, The Washington Post, he's at 41 percent. That's not good. Uh, Can the president actually do anything to improve that? I mean, that's 41 percent after the uh, infrastructure bill passed. Right. So. Um, and, and how much does his approval rating matter in the in the midterms? Well, it matters significantly because a lot of times, especially with the fate of the House, it, they kind of live and die by the popularity of the president, which is why, for example, earlier this year, you had urging from House Democrats pushing the president to be more proactive in selling the Democratic agenda, selling what the Democratic Party is doing for the American people. But right now, in terms of what President Biden can do for his own immediate approval ratings and subsequently help his uh, party's chances in the midterms, is to really get the economy under control, make people feel better about what's going on. You're seeing it reflected in a lot of polling. You know, voters don't feel great about inflation, gas prices, the supply chain crisis, how it affects the holidays. So you see, I've seen the White House, especially over the last several weeks, first of all, take a change in tone saying, we feel your pain. This matters to you. We are working hard to fix it. And they've taken some uh, short-term steps to ease uh, ease some of these uh, current economic issues. And they're hoping that passage of the Build Back plan uh, helps create or helps ease these problems in the long term. And Gloria, you just mentioned um, the governor's race in Virginia and that and that think tank, uh, the center left think tank. Mm -hmm. So they looked at uh, some focus groups with Biden voters to figure out why these voters either backed Republican governor elect Glenn Youngkin or thought about Mm -hmm. uh, voting for him. This is from their research, quote, voters believe the economy is bad 
And no amount of statistics can change their mind. We should still talk about these. This is a Democrat talking to his other fellow Democrats. We should still talk about these, but we should realize that they will have limited impact when people are seeing help wanted signs all over Main Street, uh, restaurant sections closed for lack of workers, rising prices and supply disruptions. Even where things are getting better, Biden doesn't get credit. So if you're a Democrat running for office, let's say you're Abigail Spamberger in Virginia Mm -hmm. in a swing district, what are you supposed to say? You're supposed to keep saying, look at what we've done for you. I mean, that, what was interesting about this memo is he said, remember the American Rescue Plan? You do, but the public doesn't. They don't talk about it. They don't talk. Right. They don't talk about it. what did they spend all their time talking about? How much money they were they were going to spend three, you know, three trillion dollars, whatever it was. And, and then talk about um, fighting with each other. They're not talking about. This is going to affect you. And the president is really trying to do that now. You hear him saying, look, you know, your shelves are going to be stocked at Christmas. We're going to try and get everything to get there on time. Um, Your wages have gone up more than inflation. (laughs) So you hear him trying to do that. But it takes a while to turn a battleship around, doesn't it? Very quickly. Why don't Democrats talk about the fact that, for instance, the American Rescue Plan lifted half of the kids in poverty out of poverty? Why don't they? They do try to promote, for example, that child tax credit provisions. But Democrats will acknowledge to you privately and even publicly, they're just not great at selling their own accomplishments. It's kind of an inherent quality of the Democratic Party. So that's why you're seeing all this big push to really sell their accomplishments more. Gloria Sugman Kim, thanks to both thanks. of you. Coming up next, Alec Baldwin's most in-depth interview since October's fatal shooting on a movie set. It's already getting pushback. Stay with us. And our prop culture lead now, we're seeing lots of pushback against actor Alec Baldwin saying he feels someone is responsible for the fatal shooting on the set of his movie Rust. But quote, I know it's not me. Unquote. CNN's Natasha Chen has more on the reaction to Baldwin's first in-depth interview since the gun he was handling went off, killing the movie's cinematographer. Had two people accidentally shot. For the first time since cinematographer Helena Hutchins was shot and killed on the set of the movie Rust, actor Alec Baldwin described exactly what he thought happened on October 21st. In an exclusive interview with ABC News anchor George Stephanopoulos, Baldwin says he never pulled the trigger on the gun he was holding. I let go of the hammer, bang, the gun goes off. He recounted the rehearsal just moments before the gun fired, saying Hutchins was telling him how to position his hand, holding the gun just off camera. Now in this scene, I'm going to cock the gun. And I said, do you want to see that? And she said, yes. So I take the gun and I start to cock the gun. I'm not going to pull the trigger. I, I said, do you see that? She goes, well, just cheat it down and tilt it down a little bit like that. And I cock the gun. I go, can you see that? Can you see that? Can you see that? And she says, and then I let go of the hammer of the gun and the gun goes off. In the moments that followed, complete disbelief. Well, everyone is horrified. They're shocked. Uh, it's loud. They don't have their earplugs in. No one was, the gun was supposed to be empty. I was told I was handed an empty gun. I thought to myself, did she faint? The notion that there was a live round in that gun did not dawn on me till probably 45 minutes to an hour later. The attorney for assistant director Dave Halls says Halls maintains he did not see Baldwin pull the trigger and that Baldwin did not have his finger on the trigger. Theatrical firearm safety expert Steve Wolf showed why he believes that's not likely. Not plausible 
on a single action revolver, when you pull the hammer back, which is an intentional act, click, 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 click. Now the hammer is set. When you pull the hammer back and let go, as you can see, I'm not holding this, you know, the hammer doesn't go anywhere. He says if Baldwin's finger was resting on the trigger when he let go of the hammer. He doesn't have to press the trigger again if he's already got pressure on it in order for the gun to fire. Baldwin became emotional as he described his admiration for Hutchins, but said he does not feel responsible or guilty for her death. I feel that, that, that uh, someone is responsible for what happened, and I can't say who that is, but I know it's not me. I mean, I, I, honest to God, if I felt that I was responsible, I might have killed myself if I thought I was responsible. I, I don't say that lightly. The district attorney in Santa Fe says that everyone on set had a duty to behave in a way to protect others' safety. Certain actions and inactions led to this outcome. Sources tell CNN that February is a goal for local prosecutors to make decisions in criminal charges by then, Jake. Natasha Chen, thank you so much. Breaking news, the parents of the accused school shooter in Michigan are still missing after prosecutors charged them with involuntary manslaughter in this week's high school tragedy. We're going to go live with the latest on the search. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, President Biden touting what he calls a strong economy despite a weaker than expected jobs report today. So what is the reality? Plus, families who lost loved ones to the opioid epidemic demanding that the Justice Department take action today against the Sackler family. We're going to speak to a father who has said they have been able to, quote, get away with murder. And leading this hour, breaking news, a stunning twist today. There is a manhunt underway for the parents of the suspected Michigan school shooter, and the FBI and U.S. Marshals have joined the search. James and Jennifer Crumbly were charged earlier today with involuntary manslaughter and were scheduled to be arraigned last hour. But that's not happening today because the couple failed to show up to court. The prosecutor earlier today laid out a case against the Crumblies, including claims that the couple bought the gun, seemingly for their son, and did not take seriously enough the school's concerns about their son's apparent interest in ammunition and violence. Let's get straight to CNN's Shimon Prokopez, live for us in Oxford, Michigan. And Shimon, the parents' attorneys say the, the couple, they're not fleeing police, they left town for their own safety and are headed back. But what are police saying about that claim? Right. Police are not buying it, Jake. Uh, I just got off the phone with the undersheriff here who's in charge of this entire operation. He tells me that at 348, around an hour or so ago, that his sergeant, who's in charge of the Fugitive Task Force, spoke to this attorney and said, where are your clients? And that she told him that she has not talked to her clients, the parents. So there's a lot of information here that's really interesting because if she hasn't spoken to her clients, then how does she know that they're on their way back? The police are not buying it. Uh, the undersheriff tells me that the sergeant with the fugitive task force told her, have them call us. We need to know where they are. As far as the police are concerned, they are on the run. They are fugitives and they are continuing their manhunt as they search for them. As you said, you have the FBI, the U.S. Marshals, and other law enforcement officials from all across this state now involved, Jake, in this manhunt. And Shimon, let's go back to what prosecutors said today, because the prosecutor, she laid out quite the case against the parents. She did. And, you know, 
a lot of this information had been out there. They've been alluding to some of this, but the detail and the infor new information that they obtained, text messages uh, that exchanged between the alleged shooter and his mother on one of the days, on Monday, when one of the teachers raised issues with his behavior, something that was concerning uh, this teacher, the mother was about him searching on his cell phone, searching for ammunition. Uh, the mother, they reported this to the parents and the mother texted the son saying, LOL, you know, just don't get caught. I'm not mad at you, but just try not to get caught. More disturbing, Jake, is what happens the next day. The police, the prosecutor, I should say, finally revealing what concerned the school so much. Drawings of blood, of a of blood everywhere, of the idea that he wanted to do harm. And the fact that the school just reported this to the parents and did not report any of it to the police is certainly very concerning and has angered many in this community and also the police. And the fact that the school asked, this prosecutor said the school asked the parents to take the kid home and they said, no, let him go back to class and they did. And then obviously everything that happened, they also re revealed that the gun that was purchased for, was purchased for him, that the alleged shooter was present at the gun shop on the day that the gun was purchased. So obviously all very disturbing and really just chilling information when you look at it and, and when you try to understand like how is it that so many people saw that something was amiss but yet no one, no one reported it, Jake. Jamal Prokopis, thank you so much. Let's discuss this with uh, former prosecutor Charles Coleman Jr. and civil rights attorney and CNN legal analyst Ariva Martin. Ariva, uh, what do you make of all these conflicting statements? So defense lawyers say the parents are on their way back to town, but police say those lawyers haven't even spoken to the parents. They don't buy it. What do you think? I'm not buying it either, Jake. Look, these parents know that they are to, uh, they, they were to show up in court to be arraigned. All this attorney has to do is tell police where they are at this moment. They don't get the luxury to say, we're going to come in at our leisure. The police are looking for them. They can say, stop at the nearest rest stop. Wait until the police arrive so that you can be arrested. It doesn't take this kind of activity to arrest someone who's trying to comply with police. The fact that they have not made themselves available to be arrested uh, is very troubling to me. Charles, the sheriff says that the Crumblies were not under surveillance until it got closer to last night when charges were pending. But there are some ways police could have still monitored the couple and tracked their whereabouts even without a search warrant or, or charges against them, no? Well, there are, Jake. And I think that what Ariva just said in terms of trying to cooperate is a key element to what we're talking about. Uh, the sheriff's office, certainly at the moment that they knew that the prosecutor intended to file charges against the parents, should have been on this a lot more closely. Uh, I'm not going to say necessarily that it's their fault that they're running away. Obviously, that is not something that anyone may have been able to foresee. But at the point that you have this entire situation and that you get a, you get inclination from the prosecutor that they are intending to file charges, then it becomes the responsibility of law enforcement to put themselves in position so that they can bring these people in without this sort of debacle occurring. Let's bring in former acting Baltimore Police Commissioner Anthony Barksdale. Uh, Commissioner Barksdale, what do you make of this behavior by the parents and the claims by their attorneys? Uh, it, it, it makes no sense if they're trying to do the right thing. Um, right now, we don't have time for games. They need to be held accountable. I don't buy what anybody is saying right now. We just need to focus on their capture. Ariva, the Crumblies, the parents, they're facing four counts of involuntary manslaughter. Break down exactly what that means and what kind of jail time they might face. 
Yeah, these are very serious crimes uh, in the state of uh, Michigan, Jake. Involuntary manslaughter carries up to 15 years in prison. Uh, and again, as to why these parents are not making themselves available, perhaps they know how serious these charges are. Uh, the prosecution uh, prosecutor has laid out some very chilling facts about what these parents did, uh, the flags, the red flags that they ignored, uh, that they were at the school, had an opportunity to tell the school that they had purchased this gun, that this gun wasn't kept in a secure uh, position in their homes. It's, it's really troubling, Jake, when you think about the conversations happening between the school and the parents, and the kid is there all the time with the gun in his backpack, apparently. Uh, lots of questions to still be answered with respect to how come the police were not called uh, on the day that the parents are having this conversation with the school? How come the safety officer at the school wasn't involved in this? So still so many questions, but very serious charges against these parents. And Anthony, you heard in Shimon's piece uh, that there's frustration in the community, not just among the community, but among uh, police uh, and, and what they could have done if school officials had told them about the disturbing behavior of the suspected shooter in the days and hours before the shooting? What, what could they have done? Jake, we'll go back. We had a conversation a while ago where I talked about rule one of CompStat, accurate, timely intelligence, clearly disseminated to all. So we, the communication wasn't there. And in this case, it's proved deadly. There is no way that the police and the schools shouldn't have been on the same page with this kid and these parents. Commissioner Barksdale, based on what you, you heard from the prosecutor today, do you think there's a strong case against the parents? Oh, yes. Yes. They, they, look, there's a case. There's a strong case. It, is, it, it sounds clear to me that this is serious of what they did, leaving access, giving this kid a gun, uh, and he could obviously access ammo also. So I think they have a very strong case. Let's capture them and hold them accountable. All right. Thanks to one and all. Appreciate your perspectives. Coming up next, President Biden attempts to tout a strong U.S. economy, but a new report today seems to conflict with that. Plus, new details about what was going on behind the scenes on January 6th. What Mark Meadows, the then White House chief of staff, just revealed. That's ahead. President Biden today saying the economy is strong ahead of the holidays, though the new jobs report out today was much weaker than expected. The United States added 210,000 jobs in November. That is far fewer than the half million that had been predicted. But as President Biden today noted, job reports in recent months have been ultimately revised upward after the initial report. And today, Biden acknowledged many Americans are still struggling with higher prices. CNN's Phil Mattingly starts off our coverage from the White House. We're going to keep making progress for our families and for our nation. I promise you that's what's going to happen. For President Biden, the November jobs report giving a window into an economy emerging from the pandemic in fits and starts. It's not enough to know that we're making progress. You need to see it and feel it in your own lives. Employers adding 210,000 jobs in November, down sharply from October and well below economists' forecasts, even as the unemployment rate dropped to 4.2% from 4.6%. We're looking at the sharpest one-year decline in unemployment ever. And with wages and the participation rate ticking up, Biden zeroing in on the positives. Our economy is markedly stronger than it was a year ago. It's an uneven picture demonstrating a conundrum weighing down Biden's entire presidency with robust economic growth and job gains. In the first 10 full months of my administration, the economy has created 6 million jobs a record for a new president. Countered 
by soaring energy prices and supply chain disruptions that have driven inflation to a three-decade high. I've used every tool available to address price increases, and it's beginning to work. While sending Biden's approval rating to the lowest level of his administration, all made cloudier by the persistent pandemic. And now, the emergence of potentially perilous unknowns from the Omicron variant. But look what's happened. You know, we're starting to make some real progress, and you find out there's another strain. Biden, whose voice was noticeably hoarse during his remarks, excuse me, with private business and labor, telling reporters that he has tested negative for COVID-19. It's just a cold. Something backed up in a memo from the White House physician just a few hours later. The memo noting Biden is, quote, experiencing some increased nasal congestion this week. This can be heard in his voice, and he is feeling the colloquially well-known frog in one's throat. Biden, according to the memo, has tested negative for COVID-19 three times this week. As to the genesis of the cold, the president was willing to identify his primary suspect. What I have is a one-and-a-half-year-old grandson who had a cold, who likes to kiss his pop. And Jake, White House officials may have been disappointed with that top-line jobs number, but they're keenly aware of something you mentioned, those revisions over the course of the last several months. In fact, job revisions have increased more than a, nearly a million jobs since the president took office. There's some expectation that 210,000 number will go up in the months ahead, Jake. Phil Manningly, thanks. Let's discuss. So, Neil Malik, let's start with the big-picture look here, because while the jobs numbers were Disappointing, at least as of now, there is this good news in the fact that uh, the unemployment level is down and the September and October jobs numbers were revised upward. What's your main takeaway? You know, people don't understand and feel and experience the economy based on a jobs report and based on the unemployment numbers. They experience it by how many bags of groceries they can get at the Winn-Dixie, how many uh, gallons of gas can they get, can they get a full tank or half a tank, Uh, can they save for their kids' college or kids' camp uh, during the summer. And that's where I think the problem is for this administration. Can they turn that feeling around? One idea is, you know, they just have to message, message, message better on the economy But does that actually translate to lower gas prices and lower prices uh, at the at the grocery store? Unlikely. I mean, in the near term. So I think that's the the problem that they're facing, not only now, but looking towards the midterms as well. And and Sabrina, take a listen to President Biden on the subject of trying to project optimism and, you know, get consumer confidence up uh, while also at the same time acknowledging that people are are feeling pain when it comes to unemployment and more. Despite this progress, families are anxious. They're anxious about COVID. They're anxious about the cost of living, the economy more broadly. They're still uncertain. I want you to know I hear you. It's not enough to know that we're making progress. You need to see it and feel it in your own lives, around the kitchen table, in your checkbooks. I want you to know I hear you. Uh, What do you think? It's a delicate balance for the president because on the one hand, if you look at the big picture, the economy has recovered significantly from the peak pandemic lull of 2020. But at the same time, the reality is there are still shortages in the labor market. Uh, There are still some lingering supply chain issues and there is persistent inflation. And even though economists often say that presidents have very little impact on short term inflation, The reality is, and it's something the White House has to grapple with, when Americans do see higher prices, whether it's gases or at the grocery store, they tend to reflexively blame whoever is in office. And so I think you hear President Biden trying to empathize with the American people and not just cast this entirely rosy picture. 
um, when a lot of Americans are not necessarily feeling the impact of the economic recovery so far. The question, of course, for Democrats, because a lot of the messaging is also centered in this idea that the bipartisan infrastructure bill uh, will bring some relief. And if they ever pass this Build Back Better bill, that will lower the overall costs for families. Is that something that will break through and resonate, especially if it's, there's a very real possibility that Americans may not even feel the effects of those bills going into midterms? Obviously, uh, President Biden and the Democrats are control the House and Senate are ultimately perceived as responsible and, and the buck stops there. Is there any risk for Republicans in seeming to be enjoying talking down the economy? I, sometimes I see members of the House and Senate, Republicans, p- tweeting out negative stories, uh, and I wonder, is there joy there? No, because I think Republicans are addressing the issues that people are actually worried about, as Sabrina was saying. The president is answering questions that nobody is asking. They're pushing a Build Back Better agenda that is focused on the climate and uh, child care. And those are important issues, but that, that's not what people want to see. And so there's a disconnect right now between what voters are, are, are feeling, inflation, gas prices, and what they're working on in Congress. If they even hear what they're working on, as you discussed earlier, the message is not breaking through. But even if you get to it, the idea that the Build Back Better Act is going to solve the inflation problem is nonsensical. And and until they can find a a better answer for the biggest problem that people are facing, they're going to have problems. Speaking of uh, messaging issues, Maria, I want you to take a look at this. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee tweeted uh, out this. It's a graph showing gas prices have dropped two cents per gallon (laughs) in the last few weeks. And it says, thanks, Joe Biden. Not sarcastic. They mean it. Thanks, Joe Biden. We did the DCCC a favor. We pulled this graph of gas prices over the last year from Gas Buddy, uh, and, and uh, there you go. Look at that. Yeah. So, they're, so they were doing thanks, Joe Biden, for that little teeny corner where it ticked down a little bit. But that's the overall chart of gas prices uh, since January. Not anything to be celebrating. But, thanks, yeah. Joe Biden. <laughs> Every little bit counts, Jake. But look, you know, t- to your point, Brendan. You're going to acknowledge my little graphic trick there? I love the graphic. <laughs> okay, right, right, right. <laughs> um, but... The issue is, is that the Build Back Better, according to 17 Nobel Prize economists, will actually reduce inflationary pressures on the economy. This is part of the bigger focus of this administration that will have been, once we pass it, that will be after the infrastructure bill and after the American Rescue Plan, which put millions of dollars in the pockets of Americans at the point where they needed it the most. I actually do think there is a risk for Republicans as they not just talk down the economy, but they don't offer any real solutions when Americans are focused on higher prices, on inflation. Republicans haven't focused on any positive agenda. But the issue is, of course, Democrats are in power and that's who people are going to look at for solutions. That's why I believe that Democrats need to go to a Ivy League style bragging school because they can't stop talking about all of these things that have mm. happened. And this economy is better. You talked about the unemployment numbers, but there's more. The w- wages are up, which is, you know, for the first time in a long time. That's an important number. You have the labor participation is up as well, even though you do have help wanted signs. And that is, you know, psychological for some people. But the, also the fact of the matter is, is that because people do feel better economically, they're not going to accept jobs where they feel like they're being abused, where they actually have to have two or three jobs in, or, in order to make ends meet. So, but, but uh, Niam, so Maria talks about how the Republicans aren't, aren't presenting their own uh, legislative uh, ideas, and, and the truth of the matter is they probably don't have to. Yeah, I mean, they're, the, they're the minority. Yeah. Uh, Senate Major- uh, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is telling colleagues, according to Axios, um, that Republicans are not going to release yeah. uh, any plans, legislative plans ahead of the midterms. He said, instead, he says Republicans should be 100 percent focused on Democrats and all the, quote, terrible things Democrats are doing. 
It, listen, it worked for them in 2014 just to talk down uh, what the Democrats were doing, and that's uh, what they're going to do. We'll see what they do on the House side. You have the history of, like, the contract for America, uh, and it sounds like McCarthy might be a little more apt to release some sort of uh, agenda. Uh, but listen, this is uh, midterms are about the party in power. They're referendums on the sitting president uh, and the party in power, and as long as you just talk down uh, what's happening, that is a pretty effective strategy. We see some some of the numbers already that show on the generic ballot uh, that Republicans are favored, I think, by like two points or something. And then just the history of this, you know, shows that incumbent presidents tend to lose many, many seats. And in the House, for instance, I think they only need to flip like five seats uh, for Nancy mm-hmm. Pelosi to lose the gavel. So listen, if you're a Republican, you feel pretty good. I, you know, I was talking to Maria earlier. I was <laughs> right. like, is there any chance you guys actually hold on? I think you said a slim one. And Brendan, in that Axios piece, there's this great quote that I want to read. Um, one from a Republican source. One of the biggest mistakes challengers often make is thinking campaigns are about them and their ideas, no one gives a shit about that. <laughs> Elections are referendums on incumbents, unquote. Now, that's a qu- I'm, I'm reading the I quote. I'm reading the quote, say folks. That? No, I, baby. I, so I, I know this. It, well, it's a Republican that said that, not me. Uh, <laughs> is, but is that not you either? Well, I don't know. I didn't yeah. write the story for Axios. But, like, is that true? Uh, it, it is true, and it's not. Mm-hmm. I, I, so I've been a part of a number of agendas. In 2010, when I was working for John Boehner, we released the Pledge to America. It was really important, and it helped candidates get out there and give them something to talk mm-hmm. about when they're, when they're stumping. Like, that's important. You're on the stage. What are you for? That's helpful. Does it define an election? Of course not. I wouldn't tell you our 2010 election that you probably couldn't name define the election. Right. What it's good for is if you win. What are you going to do when you win? And, and, you, and, you, and you can get your, your conference together and say, we, we promised we were going to do this, so this is what we're focused on. But Mitch McConnell is absolutely right. If, if they're going to win, they're on a glide path right now. And, and you can really just focus on what, on what Democrats are doing. Democrats are banking on the Build Back Better Act is going to save them. I think Republicans and the ones I've talked to believe that either way they win. They pass that, that bill. People are going to blame them for inflation more. People are associating inflation with runaway government spending, and they're going to be able to use that against them. If they fail... They have nothing to work with. And there are Democrats who are making that argument, too. I mean, Larry Summers is out there talking about that. And you have these moderate Democrats talking about the, the price tag is too big. And that's one of the concerns you've heard from Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, who we know really do hold the keys to the fate of this package. And one of the challenges for Democrats is when they look at the Build Back Better plan, what they're talking about is lowering overall costs for families mm-hmm. by expanding access to child care, expanding access to health care, lowering the cost of prescription drugs. Obviously, the bill is not going to have any tangible impact on short-term inflation. And so that's sort of the disconnect. And that's one of the challenges for Democrats as they go out there and try to sell this package. You know, the provisions pull well individually, mm-hmm. right. but do a lot of Americans actually know what's in this bill? And how that? soon will they actually feel its impact? So that's really going to be yeah. the question going into November. It, it, Go ahead. And I just think a big challenge, again, is that there is lag time, right, in between what is passed and what happens. So there is still a year left, let's remember that, where, where Democrats can actually do this and hopefully make a difference. Eleven months, Maria. <laughs> Eleven months. Thanks, one and all, for being here. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the outrageous ads that ran on Facebook comparing the U.S. government's response to the pandemic to Nazi Germany. Stay with us. In our tech lead today... And the hateful, shameless rhetoric pushed online that gets its tentacles from outrageous stuff such as this. A host on Fox comparing Dr. Anthony Fauci to Dr. Mengele, a man known as a Nazi angel of death. Take a look. 
What you see on Dr. Fauci, this is what people say to me, that he doesn't represent science to them. He represents Joseph Mengele, Dr. Joseph Mengele, uh, the, doc the Nazi doctor who did experiments on Jews during the Second World War and in the concentration camps. And I am talking about people all across the world are saying this. The systematic elimination and mass murder of six million Jews, not to mention millions of Catholics and gays and others, is nothing like health regulations. And anyone who suggests they're remotely the same thing is belittling those innocent people murdered and is whitewashing the evil Nazi regime. Here's what Dr. Fauci had to say about this. I think the response is what so many people throughout the country and the world are responding to that absolutely preposterous and disgusting comparison that she make. It's an insult to all of the people who suffered and died under the Nazi regime in the concentration camps. I mean, it's, it's unconscionable what she said. What I find striking, Chris, is how she gets no discipline whatsoever from the Fox network, how they can let her say that with no comment and no disciplinary action. I'm astounded by that. After the Auschwitz Memorial Museum criticized Logan, she blocked them on Twitter. CNN reached out to Fox. They declined to comment. Let's bring in CNN's Donny O'Sullivan. And Donny, you found this kind of absurd rhetoric is being repeated extensively online. Absolutely. I mean, as absurd as what you heard there on Fox, that is the sort of thing that is happening on Facebook every single day. Facebook, in fact, even taking money to run ads with these sort of messages. Uh, take a look at some of the ads uh, CNN came across on Facebook. One that reads, I'm originally from America, but I currently reside in 1941 Germany. Another shows a image of a vaccine, uh, of a syringe and says slowly and quietly, but it's a holocaust. And another then about political violence, uh, making traitors, uh, making make hanging traitors uh, great again. And Jake, it's important to point out here that these aren't just random posts on Facebook. These are paid ads, right? These, these are posts that Facebook is taking money for and targeting uh, to its users. Now, we show these to Facebook. Facebook said those first two ads about the Holocaust and, and Nazi Germany weren't against its rules um, and they took them down. They seemingly missed them. Um, but that last one, making make hanging traitors great again, uh, is not against Facebook's rules. Um, they are happy to take money from it uh, just months after we saw uh, gallows outside the U.S. Capitol. Tony, you noted these Facebook posts were not difficult for you to find. Is Facebook even have a team looking into these kinds of posts? I mean, they're a multi-billion dollar a year company. Uh, well, they say they have a very big team and they say they have a whole lot of artificial intelligence to find posts like this. But I mean, when you see posts like this that mention Holocaust, if that can't raise red flags with their systems, uh, clearly there's something very, very wrong. Uh, we're mentioning that next Wednesday, the CEO of Instagram, which of course is uh, owned by Facebook, or should we say their parent company, Meta now, uh, will be testifying the US, uh, before the US Senate, uh, will, I expect, be asked questions about something related to uh, a lot of what we've seen here, but also, uh, importantly, on Instagram's uh, harms to young children and teenagers. Some very disturbed people out there. Donio Sullivan, thank you so much. Thanks. Coming up next, inside January 6th, Trump's chief of staff revealing what was happening behind the scenes right before that horrific insurrection. Stay with us.
In our politics lead, we're getting brand new insight into exactly what unfolded in the hours leading up to the deadly Capitol insurrection from one of former President Trump's closest aides. CNN's Ryan Nobles is live for us on Capitol Hill. Ryan, you've obtained a copy of former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows' new book where he talks about the events of that day. Yeah, that's right, Jake. Uh, This book from Mark Meadows is not set to come out until next week, and it is uh, 300 pages of Mark Meadows' experience as the chief of staff to the former President Donald Trump, but he only details uh, about three or four pages to the events of January 6th, and he makes a number of claims uh, about the events of that day that will be of special interest to the January 6th Select Committee. First of all, he claims that there was no coordinated effort by the White House or the campaign to try and encourage people to storm the Capitol on that day. In fact, he writes, quote, the idea to gather on January 6th was organic, and it wasn't until the president said that he wanted to address the various groups that the plans came together. Before the final word came down from Congress that the election was settled, he wanted to make sure that all those people he had met over his four years, the ones who'd shown up to every rally, listened to his speeches, and had written him letters about their frustrations with the establishment, would have one more chance to make their voices heard and encourage each other. And this is the important part. He claims he did not call for violence, and he did not expect that anyone would enter the Capitol building. Now, this is despite the fact that on that day, President Trump specifically in encouraged his supporters to march down to the Capitol after his speech. Now, about that particular line in his speech, in his book, Meadows claims that that was just ad-libbed and that the president was only being metaphorical, that he didn't actually intend for anyone to go down to the Capitol, despite specifically requesting that they do so. And from Meadows' viewpoint on that day, Jake, he believes that everyone that was there on the ellipse that day really didn't take the president seriously. Whoa, 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 Ryan, because Mark (laughs) Meadows is trying to claim executive privilege. He's saying he can't talk to the January 6th committee about his interactions with then-President Trump. But he's writing about his interactions with President Trump, the same events that the January 6th committee wants to ask him about, and this except he's just doing it in a book to make money? That appears to be exactly what he is doing, Jake. And as we said before, he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about January 6th, but he does specifically talk about that conversation that he had with President Trump as he left the stage on that day on January 2nd. Six, I should say. So that's one example of a conversation he had. He's already said he's not going to talk about things that he says are executive privilege when he comes in for a deposition next week. We'll have to see how the committee views this in light of this new book. Maybe they should offer to pay him. Ryan Nobles, thanks so much. Appreciate it. The opioid epidemic spiraling out of control. Protesters today in Washington demanding that the Justice Department take action when it comes to one particular powerful family. We're going to talk to one of the fathers leading the fight ahead. Stay with us. In our buried lead now, that's what we call stories we think are not getting enough attention, America's drug epidemic is the ugliest and deadliest it's ever been. And families of the victims of opioids are intensifying their calls for justice. Today in Washington, family members of victims of the opioid epidemic called on Attorney General Merrick Garland to pursue an investigation and criminal charges against members of the Sackler family. The Sacklers, who have not been charged with any crimes owned Purdue Pharma, which made the addictive painkiller OxyContin. The company and the family agreed to pay more than $4 billion as part of a bankruptcy settlement deal reached in September. They agreed as well to turn over some 30 million documents, but the deal controversially awarded the family broad legal protection. 
against future civil lawsuits. It's a devastating blow for the more than 500,000 families who lost someone to the opioid epidemic. Last year, the company also pleaded guilty in federal court to multiple felonies, including conspiracy to defraud the United States. Joining us now live in studio to discuss, Danny Strong, executive producer and writer of the Hulu series Dopesick, and Ed Bish, founder of the group Relatives Against Purdue Pharma. He lost his son, Eddie, to an OxyContin overdose in 2001. So Danny and Andy, thanks so much for being here, or Ed rather. Um, the Sacklers say their family is not to blame for this public health crisis. CNN got a statement today from the Justice Department stating they're not going to comment on whether or not they're investigating the Sacklers. What do you want the DOJ to do here and why? Uh, we want the DOJ to assign a special prosecutor to the case. The company has pled guilty uh, to two to three felonies, $9 billion in fines, and yet no individuals have been charged with a felony. Well, <clears throat> a company doesn't commit crimes, people do. And there were people at the highest levels of this company that committed these horrendous crimes. It's in very many ways the crime of the century. So if the Justice Department isn't going to go after the people who committed the crime of the century, uh, why even have a Justice Department? So, Ed, you lost your son, Eddie, to this addictive drug in 2001. Uh, you have since dedicated your life uh, to fighting for some kind of justice. Um, do you feel like anyone's listening to you? <clears throat> um, I, I do. And one of the reasons we had this rally today, and while the rally was going on, I got a text from Michael Quinn who's a pro bono lawyer for the ad hoc, ad hoc uh, Committee on Accountability. And he said the DOJ acknowledged our letter and they are reaching out to him and he's trying to set up a meeting next week. So they, they, they heard us today. Well, that's great. And I hope you get that meeting. Certainly people from Purdue Pharma have had, gotten to have meetings at the Justice Department. But while I have you, Ed, uh, tell us about Eddie. What was he like? Eddie was a normal kid. He was a high school senior, just signed up for a chef school and, uh, you know, went to a high school party, him and his friends uh, messing around. And, uh, you know, there was a deadly new pill flooding the market, flooding my neighborhood by a pill mill doctor called Richard Paolino, who wound up getting 30 years in prison. I was at the first congressional hearing that year in 2001, where it came out that Purdue Pharma knew exactly how many pills he was prescribing and didn't say a thing to authorities. And Danny, drug overdose deaths hit a new record high during the pandemic, more than 100,000 American deaths in a year. Can you imagine what the reaction, the response would be by the U.S. government if if terrorists killed 100,000 Americans, but here we are uh, doing it to ourselves with, with pharmaceuticals. More than 75,000 of those were from opioids. Mm-hmm. That's 200 people a day in this country. During the seven or so minutes you'll be sitting on the set right now, somebody in America is going to die uh, from an opioid overdose death. Tell us how urgent this fight is to you. Well, it couldn't be any more urgent because of everything you just said. People are dying every single day. Every single day people are dying. And the government needs to take action. And putting a special prosecutor 
uh, in charge of this case, having someone go after the people who are responsible for what started this is an excellent start. But then the next step is, how do we get the proper medication to the people that need it? And if they could find a way, make a priority of getting MAT suboxone treatments that actually can help people turn the corner on an opioid addiction to more people, it could cause you know, a tremendous amount of good for this nation for so many people. Danny and Ed, thanks so much. And in Ed, Eddie's memory, we dedicate this segment today. And, and keep up the fight. We'll keep covering it. You keep fighting it. Thanks Thank so you, much Jake. for being with us. Coming up next, prosecuting the prosecutor. The district attorney accused of mishandling the case of Ahmad Arbery's killers. She's now facing prison herself. Stay with us. We're back with the National Lead in a case involving the three men found guilty of murdering Ahmad Arbery a week after those verdicts. The focus is now turning to the former district attorney, Jackie Johnson, who is facing charges herself. Prosecutors say Johnson mishandled the case and delayed the arrests of Arbery's killers. And now, as CNN's Martin Savage reports, she is also facing the prospect of prison. An hour after Gregory McMichael, his son Travis and neighbor William Bryan Jr. chased down and murdered the Maude Arbery on a Sunday in South Georgia, Greg McMichael was on the phone. Jackie, this is Greg. Can you call me as soon as you possibly can? Calling Jackie Johnson, the local district attorney. My son and I have been involved in a shooting and uh, I need some advice right away. For years, McMichael worked with Johnson, investigating cases for the Brunswick DA's office. Now, as he stood with Arbery's blood literally on his hands, McMichael made sure police knew about the connection. I was chief investigator with the DA's office for okay. 23 years, so I know what you got to do. No one was arrested that day, or for months to come. The Georgia Attorney General contends Johnson's influence in the case not only delayed justice for Arbery's family, but it also nearly denied it. In September, more than a year after Arbery's death, a grand jury indicted Johnson for violating her oath of office and obstructing police. Arbery's family applauded the move in a virtual press conference. And she didn't pull the trigger, but she is just as much to, to, to hold accountable as the, the three guys who actually did this to Ahmad. Johnson turned herself in at the Glen County Jail, but was free in less than an hour and didn't have to pay any bond. According to the indictment, Johnson directed police not to arrest Travis McMichael that day, even though he shot at an unarmed Arbery three times, point blank, with a shotgun, hitting him twice. The indictment also says that after recusing herself, Johnson recommended another district attorney, George Barnhill, never disclosing she'd already talked to Barnhill about the case. Barnhill would send a letter to police advising the shooting was justified, saying, we do not see grounds for an arrest of any of the three parties. That could have been the end of the case, if not for one thing. The public release more than two months later of the cell phone video showing Arbery's pursuit and murder, outraging a nation. Gregory and Travis McMichael were arrested within days. CNN's made numerous attempts to contact Johnson or her legal representation for comment without response. Johnson's repeatedly denied any wrongdoing and defended her actions, including during a virtual debate when she was running for re-election. I'm sorry that from the very beginning, a lie was told about how my office handled that case. That case is a terrible tragedy for our community, and it's a tragedy for the family. I'm sorry about how things happened. I'm sorry that a lie got started and I could not turn it back. 
voters didn't buy it. After 10 years in office, Johnson lost the election. Now this one's top prosecutor prepares for a prosecution like none she's ever faced before, her own. And the next step in the legal process, Jake, is that she will face arraignment, although there is no court date for when that will happen. Jake? Martin, what are the penalties if she's ultimately found guilty? Yeah, well, the most serious one is the violating of her oath of office. That's actually a felony. And if she were found guilty of that, then she could get one to five years in prison. You spent a lot of time in Brunswick, Georgia now throughout the trial. You spoke to a lot of people in the community. What's been the reaction to the guilty verdicts? You know, I think initially the reaction was one celebration, especially for those who supported the Arbery family. And there were many who did in that community. And there was also relief because there has been this cloud that has been hanging over Brunswick and Glen County that it seemed to be reminiscent of the old ugly days of uh, Jim Crow South, which it is not. It's a modern city, and that area is actually very progressive. So once it was refuted that this kind of killing of a black man running down the street is not going to be tolerated, they did so with a very strong message of guilty on all three men. Although and we... that community is... Very pleased. Yeah, but we should point out that probably wouldn't have happened if somebody hadn't leaked the video, right? I mean, it still would have been covered up. Those three murderers would be walking the streets. The video was absolutely key. No doubt about it. Federal case will be up next for the three. Martin Savage, thanks so much. You can tune in to State of the Union Sunday. Among our guests, Dr. Anthony Fauci, Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, Mississippi's Republican Governor Tate Reeves, Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. That's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. You can listen to our show on the podcast version. If you miss it, our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. Next door in the Situation Room. Thanks for watching. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.